The Space God Memoirs. Episode 27 I was back in that room atop the tower, but it was different. The edges hazy and shimmering like the indistinct remembrance of dream. Yet there in front of me was that altar, and the throne gate behind it. This time there was no body on the altar. The room was empty. Then I saw them rush in, the remaining KOG, a few of the evolved ones among them. Trevos was here, an irritated scowl on his face as he looked over the room. Another damn puzzle, he muttered, fingering the blade at his hip. Be calm, stated Ophiro, giving the chamber a casual glance over. I suspect we are nearing the end of our tests. One of the evolved, Brother Fenard, who I crawled from my sneaking time, stepped forward from the entrance and began walking the circumference of the room. He took a knife and started tapping one of the walls with its pommel, as if looking for something hidden. Stop that, ordered Bakibra, taking a step towards him. We know how trapped this place is. This room can be no different. She raised an arm and took another step towards him. Fenard stepped back from the wall, returning his dagger to its sheath. A few of the others began milling about as well, but quickly stopped after one of Trevos's murderous glares. I noticed that nobody was responding to me being there. Likely they couldn't even see me. Of course not. I wasn't really there. This was just a memory, or an illusion, dream, or whatever. So I watched. Come here, said Bikibra, gesturing at Trevos, who joined her in front of the altar. Ain't that lovely, he spat, looking down at it. To give of oneself is the noblest of virtues. The success of the group overshadows the life of the individual. Now they want us to kill each other. Indeed, said Fenard. As the lords beyond teach, it is the strong who survive, evolving as they take the life force of the weak and benefit from it. The gods of this world aren't kind. This sounds like their will for sure. Trevos deftly lowered his left hand to his waist. One flick of that hand and the twist blade was out, spinning with a shriek into a three-foot-long jagged dagger. Let's do this, he stated, looking straight at Fenard. The other man gave a short bow and brought out the knife sheathed at his hip. By the will of Koravath, who smiles upon the great, it shall be done. Gobe, by his side, did likewise, taking out his identical dagger but saying nothing. Somnar, just behind the prince, reached for the axe on his back. Stop, commanded Prince Ophiro his hair in matching white robes rippling with telekinetic energy. Remarkably, they listened, all of them lowering their blades. He glanced from one end of the room to the other, meeting all eyes with his own nearly white orbs. Are you all so illiterate that you cannot comprehend the words written? He started. Or are you all so eager for bloodshed that you would bring us to ruin? 
The verse states clearly that there is a sacrifice required. But it is also clearly one sacrifice, not all. This is no fight to the death, good warriors. Merely a test of our ability to make decisions. <clears throat> said Trevos, lowering his twist blade further but not sheathing it. So do we make that decision, sweet prince? Draw straws, wrestle for it. There was a moment of silence, Ophiro not responding, and the others not daring to speak. But I knew how this turned out, even if the images before me didn't. I looked to Bakibra, standing right behind her prince. Her helmet was off, her head lowered, her face revealed. Her deep brown eyes, young, yet with crow's feet already visible, and lines at her lips. Hers was not the sort of face that was easy to read, but from where I stood I could see the glint of tears in those eyes, and a gentle shake in her hands under the gauntlets. For an instant I was Bakibra. I could feel her in this moment of decision, her eyes darting quickly between her prints, her sworn war, and that damn altar. There was a sadness in her, a deep sadness of regret, of longing, of duty and love, all thrown together into a woman whose metal shell was eating away at her day by day. Prince Ophiro looked to the altar as well, as if contemplating something. Was it also duty? The duty of a ruler to his subjects? To make the sacrifices, the hard decisions that others could not? Just like he had made a decision to have the porters and Rayleigh killed. The prince made a step towards the altar. Bakibra met her ward's gaze. The two locked eyes, and I sensed something strong between them. A bond more than just a prince and his guardian. A duty, yes, but also a friendship, and even love. But a love denied and held back until it could no longer be fulfilled in the flesh or in the bonds of marriage. Until it could only come down to this. Bakibra met eyes with her liege lord, and Ophiro gave a subtle nod. It will be me, said Bakibra, moving towards the altar. A few steady strides brought her to it. She took one last look over the room, at her silent companions, none of whom protested or offered themselves. Even Prince Ophiro looked away, and I knew Bakibra's unspoken heartbreak. She lowered herself onto the altar. In the course of five heartbeats that felt like forever, she waited for the inevitable to arrive. In moments it did, cuffs rising from the sides of the altar to grip her wrists and ankles. And in another heartbeat, a single, focused white beam shot through her chest in one painful but brief instant. A light on the archway above the throne began to glow, to hum, and then the blackness fell over Bakibra's eyes, and her consciousness faded into the dark. She was dead. Or not. The scene faded from my sight just as it did hers, melting away and swirling off into a stream of colors and lights that drained away into blackness. Then she was before me, Bakibra. Or was it just a stream of thoughts, of ideas about her? Or was I her? Right then and there, it was hard to tell. But I was seeing a life spreading before me, just like with my friends. A little girl with black hair and brown skin. The child of a well-connected but untitled family. 
given to the Gnadrian royals to be trained as a guardian to their youngest son. It was a life of luxury mixed with hard training, days and nights spent as the companion to a growing prince, to be his friend, but also his protector. She was twelve and he fourteen when she first laid eyes upon him, a boy quiet and delicate of feature. Ophiro had just returned from his training in the Citadel, among the masked witches, his demeanor brooding, his manner aloof. Yet behind those pale gray eyes he held a heavy strength and a deep mystery. At first there was merely silence between the two youths, both with little to say to anyone. Yet neither she nor Ophiro had many true friends. Deprived of all but their mutual company, the two eventually exchanged words, and those words eventually grew in number until the two were something close to friendly. Bekebra knew that the prince could be cruel, could be cold and distant. Something those witches had done to him during his schooling had created a dark strangeness in the prince, or had merely brought it to the forefront. But at times Ophiro could still be gentle, thoughtful, vulnerable, and he held within his cool gaze a mystery of depths and of great power, luring her, drawing her in. As the two grew older, there was an attraction, a blossoming love of more than just companions. A heated kiss exchanged in the royal gardens, a night of touching and caressing and exploration. Yet hanging over it all was the knowledge that it could go no further, that she was destined to wear the armor and protect her prince, her ward, her love. That armor that strengthened the muscles and boosted the reflexes that made one the perfect protector and the ideal killer, yet which broke the body in a decade or so. Whatever she felt, whatever customs and politics and traditions would have allowed, all of that fell away into the truth of the armor. She was the armor, and whatever life she might have wanted for herself would be absorbed into that. Her training reached its peak at age 14, and after that she began wearing it, embracing her duties, her destiny. I watched as she trained and fought, and it was like I was doing it alongside her. And every day she looked at Ophira with a longing that could never be fulfilled. A love forever denied her, but always in her sight. She would watch from the shadows of doorways or overhanging balconies, vigilant and on guard as the prince met with suitors from around the kingdom, and Bekebra's heart broke again and again as Ophiro read them gentle poetry and danced the delicate compositions. Yet Bekebra hung on for what she did not know. Every year, the bitterness growing stronger as the armor pushed her body to the limit and drained her youth away. She grew to wear a steely exterior, as hard as the suit she wore over her skin. She pushed herself into her training and into the fight, serving in the vaunted Knights of Ganadria under knights whom she admired and despised at the same time. And thus, like all people, the events of Bakibra's life had brought her to this point, to her death. But what was death? I asked this of myself as I stared into the knight's hazel brown eyes at her stoic expression that hid a deep core of tenderness which had never vanished. We locked eyes upon what appeared around us as the ramparts of Ganadria's palace, rusted metal railings overlooking a ramshackle city in the plains beyond, all illuminated in the orange light of sunrise. 
We did not exchange words. We did not need words here in such a state of being. Everything she needed to tell me had already been told in the flashes of imagery, of memory, of experience itself, more complete than any words could be. As we stood there together, looking out over what had been her world, I knew that, yes, Bakibra was dead. Her body was broken and rotting down there in the tower, along with all the others who had not made it. Yet she was alive, before me and with me. Perhaps I was dead as well, along with all the others in the party. Perhaps the very act of sitting in that chair had dissolved our bodies back there on Arubus. And here we were in one scragged-up afterlife. I let loose a chuckle at the absurdity of it all. Bakibra smiled, as behind us, orange-tinted, puffy clouds drifted in the illusory skies of this overworld. And then, as I felt that this communication was likely drawing to a close, Bakibra stepped forward into me. A surge of strange energy, a crackling, whooshing kind of noise ringing through what passed from my body here. Again, blackness, a shift, a change in scenery. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Space God Memoirs. Space God is written, performed, and produced by A.M. Arctos. Original musical score by Alpha Colors. Various sound effects created by Industrial Strength Records Incorporated. Please support this podcast by following, rating, and sharing on your favorite social media site. For further info on Space God, its creator, and various other opinions, musings, and thoughts, go to www.spacegodmemoirs.com or follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. If you enjoyed the Space God Memoirs, please consider supporting us by becoming a patron. Check out the Patreon link in our description to learn more.